this is Kai. Hey, Kai. Hey, Michael. So uh, we're waiting for Patrice to answer. Great. Hey, guys. Hey, there's Patrice. I figured it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I, I thought we'd try something a little different from now on. I realize, you know, it's it's enough work to get people booked onto the podcast and to, uh, you know, figure out their schedules. And then, and then you're kind of adding another layer, trying to call them again right before you release it. Uh, I thought it'd be, you know, uh, interesting and fun to kind of catch up with uh, current and future co-hosts, uh, see what's been going on. Yeah, that'll be tricky to catch up with future co-hosts. <laughs> oh! <laughs> so, That's true. So, Kai, uh, what have you been up to? Let me just let me just pause, everyone. Is somebody, like, rustling through um, some sort of box of uh, metal? Gotta be Patrice. <laughs> it's me. Yeah, I'm dumpster diving. No, I'm not. (laughs) Sorry. No, I'm here. Sorry, I just, uh, I was trying to get this charger working, but I got it figured out. Okay. Uh, (laughs) So, Kai, what have you been up to? uh, Well, I haven't heard the uh, podcast coming up, obviously, but I imagine that Sasha must speak a little bit about Gary Winogrand, right? Absolutely. Yeah, she's working on the documentary. Uh, She had been on a kind of a whirlwind tour of interviews for the documentary. And, and that w- when we uh, recorded with Dennis Santella, um, she had just finished up and she was pretty exhausted. Yeah, so that made me think of Leo Rubenfein, who, you know, as we know, uh, curated the retrospective of Gary's that just got finished uh, touring the world. And he has a show up right now at Stephen Kasher Gallery of all brand new work that he shot in the last nine months. And... Uh, you know, as daunting as having looked through all those Gary Winogrand photographs and, you know, photographs on the streets of New York, his show is all photographs from New York. Um, and you can definitely see that he was thinking about Gary while he's making them. But of course, he's shooting with this new high-end digital camera. And I think most, uh, the biggest difference is he's shooting with a long lens. So it's these uh, sort of shoulder and head group shots roaming around the streets of New York and I think people should check out that show or, or go to his website, uh, leorubenfine.com, I think, and, and check that out. That's a great recommendation. How about you, Patrice? What have you been up to? Well, I went to the Lee Freelander opening yesterday and um, on Kai's recommendation, went and saw some uh, photographs by Versailles that are at the Howard Greenberg Gallery. And there, there they were um, uh, his collaboration with Henry Miller for a book about one of the neighborhoods in Paris that they both frequented. Um, And their crop for editing, which is kind of funny to see that, you know, he was, I'm guessing it was to fit in the format of the book maybe, but I think a lot of photographers of that era used to, you know, crop their photos for different publication purposes. So that's a great show at Howard Greenberg Gallery right now. Yeah, I saw you were, um, you were posting that on Instagram. Yeah, really cool Cool did, to see those. Uh, you, I think, you, did you refer to Brisai as? Um, oh yeah, I Instagram. called him my boyfriend. That's what it was. You know, aiming high. <laughs> so, Michael, uh, do you have any recommendations for us? Yeah, actually, I wanted to recommend another podcast. Uh, a colleague of mine at Mercer has been putting together this show for a year, and we all just found out about it when I asked him. You know, how come he's just telling us? He said, well, we didn't really want to promote it or anything. <laughs> nice. There, it's, it's three guys. So Steve Voorhees, he's my colleague in the TV department. Andrew Salvati and Jonathan Bullinger. 
they have this podcast called Inside the Box. It's a, a TV history podcast, but it's actually a bit more than that. They are all uh, PhD candidates in new media or media. And so they're doing the, all this research on the history of television, and they decided to put it together as a, a show. And it's really interesting. I was just listening to a, an episode on interactive television, which I think they date back to all the way almost to the beginning of TV. And then uh, I think it was in the 70s, there was this uh, device called the Cube, Q-U-B-E, where, where people actually punch in answers and things uh, on a handheld device that's w- wired to their TV or their phone system. I mean, it's also uh, has a lot of pop culture references, and they do a, a lot of great research on their website, tvhistorypod.com, where they, they dig up these old videos and commercials and things like that. So it's kind of fun to listen to and watch. Sounds great. So, well, thanks for calling in, guys. Yeah, thanks enjoy a lot, the rest- Michael. Yeah, yeah. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. <laughs> you too. And uh, we'll start the show now. Great. Okie doke. Bye-bye. I've been asking people questions for like 10 hours a day for three days. Yeah, so now you're on the other end of the mic. Now I'm on the other side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here we are. We're uh, with Sasha Waters-Fryer. Do you use your full name? I do. Yeah. And uh, my co-host today is Dennis Santella. First time. Hi, Dennis. Hi, Michael. (laughs) Nice. Fun to meet you. Yeah. Yeah. Sasha and I have have known each other for quite a while, but Dennis, you and Sasha just met. That's right. Although we've been in shows together and I've heard her name a lot. Yeah, we, we've all been in the, the Panorama show together, and I ha- currently have your work, Dennis, right? Oh, that's right. Oh, or I have some other work. And, and Sasha, what did, where did your work end up after the show that I put on down at Mercer? The Panorama, that is my one and only photography show, so I'm oh. primarily a filmmaker. <laughs> yes. So that was, that's sort of my big photography debut and potentially the closing, <laughs> the closing show of my career. Did, did you ever? Did you I was, get? The, I was curious about that too. Did so. you pick up the photos? Did you ever get? Oh the yes, photos? yes, yes. I have the work. Oh, okay. Uh, it's it's. I have it. I think I brought everything up to Columbia, or or. Oh my God, do do I have it? <laughs> I have to think because I've moved a few times in the last few years. I moved from Iowa to Richmond, and then I moved twice when I was in Richmond. I'm pretty sure I have it shipped to me. I'm pretty sure I have it in Richmond. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So, Sasha, you are a filmmaker. I am a filmmaker. Yeah. And, and you've had some, some interesting uh, successes as of late. I mean, Chekhov for Children did very well. Uh, and I remember it screened here in Manhattan. It did. It screened at the Film Society um, at Lincoln Center, which was a very special screening because everyone who was in the film was able to come and see it because pretty much everyone who's in the film, except for one person, uh, is still based in New York. And mm. so everyone was there for that. Yeah. So but you started out uh, in photography, and I met you through uh, the School of Visual Arts, basically. I, I think you were a few years after me. I think just one. What, I, I graduated in 1991. Oh, so I graduated in 90. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, how far back did the, your passion for photography go? Was that something you had at home? Did that start in high school? You know, what's interesting is that it started the summer before I went away to college. And I went to the University of Michigan, and I took a photography class, you know, in the mix with all of the other liberal arts classes. Uh, print. I actually took photography and printmaking, intensive French uh, philosophy. And I just, I knew I wanted to study photography, and I felt like I should come back to New York 
to do so. I mean, the University of Michigan was phenomenal. It was a great experience. I'm still friends with people I met there, but I was there for a year and then I transferred and went back and came back to New York to go to the School of Visual Arts. So I kind of got the best of both worlds with the Michigan and then being at SVA. Right. What, was, were there any uh, influences at home? Did, what did, what did your parents? My father's did? a graphic designer. Oh, okay. So yeah, he's certainly, he, the, there was always a sort of visual culture available and around. And, you know, I, growing up in New York City, um, 70s and 80s, going to galleries, going to museums with my parents was certainly very influential. But photography in particular, as soon as I... I guess I must have, I think I got a camera for my high school graduation. And I think that was it. I started photographing that summer and fall and I was, I was in. <laughs> so you came back specifically to study photography? I did. Or? I came back specifically because I thought, well, you know, you can take photography at a big university like Michigan, but it's not the same thing as being in an art school in New York where you have these um, faculty members who are, who are artists and, and professionals and, and sort of working in the field. And, and then also the opportunity to have really small classes and to really focus on it as a, as a BFA. Who did you, who did you have at, at SVA? How did you start? Did you come in as first year, first semester? Well, let's see, because I was a transfer student, it was unusual. I had a kind of a strange, I had a kind of a strange structure where I came in and I sort of didn't quite gel with a particular class actually until my junior year. So I had some, I had some really, I mean, I had, a, I had some wonderful uh, professors while I was there and I studied printing with Sid Kaplan and I took a studio class with Sardi Klein and I was never really much one for studio lighting, but I still remember that class. And I had Tom Roma in that uh, junior seminar class. And the, the interesting story about that class is that I had, I had signed up for a different instructor and the class met those seminars met from nine to three one right, day a week. Were, they were very were intense. Yes, courses, right? so I had signed up for a different class that met on the same day at the same time. And I went to class the first week, and I sat through the first two hours, you know, until there was a break. And I thought, I don't this. I'm in the. I don't know what's happening. I'm in the wrong <laughs> class. I don't remember who the who the teacher was, but I just thought this instructor. You know, these students are putting up their work and saying all these bullshitty things about them. And, <laughs> and this instructor's letting them get away with it. And I'm just, I'm in the wrong place. So I knew that there was this other section. So I thought, I'm going to go see if I can get into this other section. I've heard this guy, Tom Roma's, he's pretty good. So I went and I, I knocked on the door and said, you know, I, I accidentally signed up for this other class, but I think this is the class I need to be in. So Tom, <laughs> so Tom, <laughs> He had me come in. First of all, of course, he said, why would you sign up for another class when there was this class? You, everyone who's anyone should be signing up for this class. And then he said, you know, you're going to have to make your case to these fellow students in the room. And then you're going to leave the room and they're going to vote on whether or not we should let you into the class. And luckily... They voted. But I will tell you, many years later, Jeffrey Ladd, I, I mean, many ask. years later, like 15 years later, Jeffrey you. Ladd said to me, I voted against you. <laughs> what? Did he say why? He just said, uh, you know. Oh, your face. That yeah, your I face. don't know. He just said, uh, you know, you know, Jeffrey, he was very, he was like Mr. Skateboarder, cool guy. I think he thought I was like kind of dippy. And I voted against you. It's like, oh, Thanks carrying it as this guilty secret <laughs> for right. all these years. <laughs> but it was a wonderful class. And I mean, I, I, I was in that class with Jeff Ladd and with Preston Resignio. And, and really, I mean, it was a really wonderful experience. And then after that, the following year, we had Lois Connor. Right. Oh, so so we, um, except for me, 
most of the people I was speaking to about Tom Roma took that path. It was third year Tom Roma, fourth year Lois Connor. Mm-hmm. Right. And then uh, what kind of work were you doing back then? I was shooting, I was shooting uh, black and white and color, although principally black and white negative. And I got a Leica. I'm sure that was as a result of being in Tom's class. And then I believe it was in my senior year that I got the Panorama camera. So I started shooting black and white um, panoramics with that camera. And it was largely, you know, it's very influenced by, for lack of a better term, what we would call street photography. I was thinking about this because, you know, this term street photography is somewhat contested. You know, what is it? It's not just on the street. And I started trying to think of better, I mean, but there, what, what can you call it? Right. Sort of photography in public, yeah. in the documentary tradition. You right. know, it's like two... Documentary mm-hmm. style, on-the-fly photography. Right. Right, right. So that was something that was certainly appealing to me. Um and I would say uh, Gary Wintergram was certainly an early influence, but there were other photographers who I was really attracted to at that time, like Sally Mann, of course, because At 12 had really recently come out, Nan Golden. But that sort of photographing one's life was very attractive. My life was not as interesting as any of those people, though, so that was a challenge. <laughs> and, and did you continue that work through uh, Lois's class, through the seminar course? I did. I continued that work. Through, I did. Through, I did continue it. I think I, my senior thesis, my senior thesis was all 35 millimeter black and white because I had just picked up that panorama and I didn't have a sort of developed body of work with it. Because as you know, it's a very difficult frame to work with and to fill in an interesting way. Just that shape is so, it's so challenging. You really have to do it a lot. Yeah. Why, why did you pick up the panorama? I and mean, is that related to your interest in film? Or did the film come later or? You know, I think I wanted, I think I was just sort of experimenting and trying new, new frame shapes and sizes. I actually also, now that I remember, I actually also did shoot some medium format as well, both color and black and white. But that must have been, I don't think I owned one of those cameras. I must have done that through cameras, you know, equipment checkout. But again, just sort of trying to figure out what is the shape that I'm interested in. And I, just last year, my husband got an an X-Pan and I've been using it and shooting color negative with it. And I think part of that, again, is just this idea of challenging the eye with a new shape because I shoot 16 millimeter film, which is very square. And I started to feel like, well, if I go out and I start shooting with this, you know, this more panoramic shape, how can that teach me something? Yeah, then you can start shooting 70 millimeter. Right. Dennis, you've you've done quite a bit of work with the panorama in sort of investigating that that shape, right? And that yeah, format. I mean, I think that's that's kind of what held me for so long is the that strange shape and trying to like do something with it that you now works for the format. You now that doesn't just depend on the sort of weird shape as a matter of interest, but like what right. what can you actually I don't know sort of tease out of it that means something photographically rather than just being an odd shape. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's been, I feel like it's been productive for me <laughs> i keep thinking oh, i should go back to a more like standard format or i'm going to be the like panoramic guy <laughs> but i keep thinking of like interesting things that work with the format that like really mean something in that format rather than just being panoramic images right and i think it's interesting to pick it up in a in a in a sort of looser way because we associate it so much i mean just the sort of panoramic shape you know that tradition from painting that's sort of this grand tradition of landscape painting and to use it in a way, to use it photographically towards a different end is just sort of an, is an interesting challenge or yeah, practice. Yeah, and then when you turn it vertically, it's a whole other world. Right. <laughs> so where did you go after SVA? So after SVA, I 
I began pretty quickly to start working in film. And one of the reasons for that actually was the sort of the lessons uh, learned from some of my, my friends and peers who had graduated a year or had a year or two ahead of me from SVA. Do you want me to wait? Do you want me to wait? Oh, or you no, don't I, care about that? Okay. Yeah, yeah we're on location <laughs> we're, and hearing a <laughs> Penn Station right now. Amtrak the, trains that yeah. go by. We shot an interview <laughs> yesterday. Like that was to every. Yeah. We shot an interview yesterday in Greenpoint that was in the flight path at LaGuardia, and I mean, oh, yeah. in the flight path. That's and every, every two minutes, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's every three minutes. We would just, I would go like this, and we'd stop, and we'd wait, <laughs> and we'd go on. Or and then we got into the thing where I was a- asking questions while the planes were going over, and then. The person could answer them anyway. So you're talking about your influence from um, students who had graduated a little earlier than you. Yes. So students who had graduated a year or two ahead of me at SVA, a number of people were sort of moving into working as assistants, working as studio assistants or uh, on-set assistants, and and did not seem particularly happy with that. I mean, it's very. I mean, at that time, very challenging. Maybe a little more challenging for for women because also a lot of that just. Being a, being a photographer's assistant is you know, carrying lots of heavy cases. That didn't really appeal to me. And then I think also one of the things that was so great about being in photography at SVA at that time was the sense of community. You know, because when you're a photographer, you're out photographing alone or you're in the darkroom alone. But there was a very rich, active community of people who looked at each other's work, who all went to openings, who ran into each other at museums. And then once I was out of school, I, that was, I mean, I stayed in touch with people, but that was missing. And I, and I, the kinds of jobs that seemed available, I wasn't too sure about. At one point I had this crazy idea that I wanted to become a crime scene photographer. You know, you know, it's like, what do you sure. do? What am I going to do? I'm going to study photography and then what? And so I started working in film as an intern or assistant in part to sort of be back in that community of people working more collaboratively. Was that still in New York? That was in New York. I stayed in New York. Uh, let's see. I graduated in 1991. And from 91 to 96, I worked in New York, mainly in documentary film, but also some in sort of independent feature production. So I, I started interning for Barbara Koppel. I actually met her when I was waiting tables at Spring Street Natural Restaurant in Soho. I had just seen American Dream, and I loved that movie. And I said to her, you're Barbara Koppel, <laughs> you know, which I don't think, you know, at that time, I don't know, now she might be recognized, but, and we just started talking and I, I just said, I love your work. And she said, oh, I'm, I'm starting this new film. It's all about Mike Tyson. And so I ended up going and going to work for her uh, on a film called Fallen Champ, the untold story of Mike Tyson. It was an NBC movie of the week. And I watched a lot of boxing footage, and I transcribed a lot of interviews with Mike Tyson. And through her, I sort of then met other people and got connected into that world. I also, at the same time, started interning for a filmmaker named Michael Almereda, who I met through Tom Roma, and who I'm still friends with today. So I did some research for him. Like, this is something that's interesting to me, like, listening to some of the other interviews is, like, there's been some talk of, like you were saying, um being involved in the community and like meeting these other people and you wanted to sort of stay in touch with that community and thinking about like what are the sort of job opportunities available like what might you do after you graduate sure <laughs> which i think is on a, is always on a lot of people's minds like what do you do after you you're done here and i think it's it's also something that kept me in sort of the photo community or kept me photographing to some extent was sort of the community that surrounded mm-hmm. say the dark room at columbia you know i was uh, after I graduated from college, I worked in the darkroom for another like two years after that before, uh, well, while I was in grad school again and then 
continued to work there while I was working. It's like I just kind of hang around the darkroom a lot. Well, I was just thinking that I think this is something I still think about and we still think about because we now teach students who are having the same questions and concerns and in order to try to be helpful or to try to help them think through those issues, it's important to sort of know what the opportunities are, but it's also important to recognize that what I did in 1991 when I graduated Mm -hmm. from college is not going to be what you're going to be able to do graduating from college in 2015. And to really ask younger students, photographers to, I always ask students to look at, you know, what are the things who the the people you admire who are five to 10 years older than you, what, what did they do right out of school? And maybe that is a particular path. Mm. I don't think I did anything that intelligent. I mean, I was sort of happy to say, I'm going to wait tables for a couple of years and figure it out. And I, but I also had the privilege of not having parents who were pressuring me to get a job. I mean, really, I, I, as long as I could support myself, which I did once, I mean, I was graduate from college, I was on my own, but it was sort of fine to be like, well, I'm young and I'll continue to photograph and waiting tables make sense. And then it made sense when I started working in the film industry because I work for free for people. And then eventually that turned into various jobs. It's yeah. funny. I, I've only just recently stopped thinking about how I did it as a way of, of trying to tell students something, right? Because at community college, I have students who work probably way more hours than they intend classes. Uh, and, and I always, you know, for a long time, I would say, you know, I worked three jobs and I, you know, I, I still got it all done. I woke up at four in the morning. Sometimes I went to bed at three in the morning sometimes. And, you know, and it didn't seem to, it, I think it lost its impactfulness. I don't think that's as meaningful to whatever it is that's going on in their lives today. And, and so I've actually stopped saying that. I've stopped bringing that up. It, if students are having trouble meeting deadlines, getting things done, I just try to figure out what it is that's holding them back. But I'm not going to preach to them about how I did it anymore. Yeah, but I think my my half question was more, I guess, more of an observation, like listening to, you know, what you're just telling us is kind of how eccentric the like path to whatever you're doing is. Yes. It's, it's not like you can take it as an example. It's just sort of like you you find a path if you have a sense of like what you want to do with yourself. So I think the same thing happened to me. I'm not <laughs> like, sure I had that sense. I mean, because I really, I did stop photographing and, and the sort of central, you know, this came up when I was with Tom. I, you know, we I talked about, because he was showing cameras to the DP and, and to the producer and all the tech. And I talked oh, about it. Oh, yeah. Well, we're going to talk about what you're working on recently. Right. And, of course, <clears> you <throat> just saw Tom Roma on this project. But, yeah, keep going. But, I, but I, you know, I said, I said I sold my panorama. And at the same time, I said, because I'm an idiot. And Tom <laughs> said, and he said, you're an idiot. I mean, we both said it at the same time. You're an idiot. And I was like, I know. And I sold it to Michael. Yes. Uh, and but, I still have it. And he still has it. And no, I'm keeping it. No, I know, I know. <laughs> but but that was the moment where I made a commitment to being a filmmaker, really, because I I mean I wasn't photographing anymore. I had started working on my first film, and and so there was this switch that happened. I think when I got involved in working in film and working for other filmmakers, and also being sort of coming from it felt like a natural evolution in the sense that it came from an interest in documentary style photography or the sort of documentary practice of photography and then wanting to be more not more but have a different kind of engagement with people that I met or with storytelling and etc you start when did you start like seriously working on your your first documentary so when I worked for Barbara Koppel I met my film partner and collaborator who I worked with for a long time throughout the 90s her name was Yana Porter and she and I decided that we were going to make a film together. We decided that we were going to make 
a short documentary in 16 millimeter, which I had never shot and which Yana had shot once. And we decided we were going to make it about dominatrixes because we were in New York. I knew someone who was the girlfriend of a friend of my then boyfriend who had become a dominatrix and she had all these crazy stories, but you know, not the most accessible (laughs) subject. And so we started that project in 1993. We we're able to raise money through private investors incredibly, which I've actually never been able to do since mm. then. Mm. But we got some money for the film from the guys who started Sub Pop Records, and we turned it into a longer film. So it became a 63-minute film called Whipped, all shot on 16 millimeter. We had, I mean, we just had amazing luck with it because we had, you know, because through working film, we had um, cinematographers who would work for free or very low budget. We were able to borrow equipment. I borrowed Barbara Koppel's Nagra, which is the reel-to-reel tape machine for recording audio. I think I think I had that thing in my bedroom for like two years. I mean, we just had, you know, we just had all this stuff. And so, and that film was finished in 1998. And then before then, I actually left New York to go to graduate school for film in 96. Where was that? And that was at Temple University in Philadelphia. I actually applied to Columbia and didn't get in because it was very screenwriting. I mean, it was that, it was when they had that, it was very screenwriting focused and they didn't have, they didn't really have documentary. I think it was like, I was waitlisted and then, you know, because I remember there was a conversation about it and I actually think it was great. I mean, it was, I needed to leave New York. I lived here all my life. I, th- I think Philadelphia was as far as I was willing to go because I also applied to Austin, but then I didn't like finish my application because I thought <laughs> like I may as well be going to I don't know Singapore. Like it just seems so far away. Uh, so I went to I lived in Philadelphia then from ninety six to ninety nine. And and so this the whipped project was actually part of your master's work then. You know, it actually wasn't part of my master's work because I had, was making it with someone else it just took so long you know so it wasn't it just wasn't really you know we'd work on it and then we wouldn't and then during that I mean during that whole time Yana and I both would periodically have jobs working Yana worked for Barbara Koppel for a long time I would have I would periodically have jobs working for other filmmakers so I kind of got in this path of working on PBS documentaries as a researcher writer associate producer so I'd get hired on a job job would last nine or ten months and then I'd get laid off and be able to collect unemployment for six months. I mean, it was like, it was amazing. I didn't have health insurance for 10 years, but it was great. How soon after you got your master's degree, did you start teaching? So I got my master's degree in 99. I didn't go on the market. I mean, I wasn't really thinking about teaching. I was sort of, I was sort of really in limbo at that time. I didn't really want to stay in Philadelphia. I didn't, I felt pretty alienated when I came back to New York. It just felt like it, I felt like a, an economic exile. Like it just felt too expensive to try and live here and be an artist. I was already over 30. So I came back to New York because I got a, I got another just PBS producing job, but I was really sort of trying to figure out what, like, what am I going to do next? And a friend of mine emailed me a listing for a job at the University of Iowa. And it was, it was a very specifically a documentary position. And she said, oh, you should apply for this. And I thought, I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't think I'm really experienced enough. I mean, this is, this is, this seems like maybe something for a few years out. She said, Oh, just apply, just apply, just apply. And so I did. And then I got the job and that was it. And I took that job in 2000. So I started there in August of 2000 thinking, I mean, it was really sort of like, well, 
I don't want to be in Philly. I don't want to be in New York. I'd like health insurance. <laughs> you know, it was really not a lot of long range planning. Right, yes. It was sort of like very like it was a short I don't, checklist. Yeah, like, yeah. I, don't really, I don't have a you know. I don't know. I had this boyfriend. He lived in Oakland. I didn't really want to live in Oakland. What am I going to do? So so I took this job at Iowa, thinking I might only stay there a few years, and I ended up meeting my husband there. Is and that John kids. Fryer? Yes. So so I met him there. He was a graduate student. Not in my department. <laughs> and Everything was on the up and up. Yes, everything was on the up and up. He was taking a class with one of my colleagues when we first started seeing each other. And he would sometimes drop me off like at school. And I could see my colleague, Franklin, like pretending not to see me getting out of his student's car. Like, what's going on here? So, we, so that happened. And then, you know, it, it, just, it was a very easy place to, to get my work done. Although my work it was, sort of was changed by being there as well. And then also, we, you know, I had kids and... Sort of just an easy place to live, except for the winters. But what were you doing at that time? You were saying you it was an easy place to work. Sure, like sure, what? sure. So my I had made a film when I was at Temple. I my MFA thesis film was a documentary called Raising Appalachia, and it was an hour long documentary about a community fight against strip mining in West Virginia. And that so that was something that I had I spent a lot of time going back and forth between uh, Philadelphia and Southern West Virginia. Uh, and so, you know, I made, I made whipped and then I made some little short things that weren't really, I mean, I don't really even consider them part of my work. They're more sketch work when I was in graduate school. And then I made this thesis film. So I had made two long films, each of which had taken five years to complete from start to finish, really, because Raising Appalachia, I got my degree on it, but it wasn't finished and broadcast until 2003. So I think I, I think I really need, I just needed to make short work because the learning curve is when it takes you five years to complete something, think, well, maybe I can be more playful and experimental and learn more from this in a way that, you know, can cut that time down in terms of the, the five-year track. And so I started making more short work and working, going, going back and working more in 16 millimeter, but and, doing more experimental work. In your CV, you're, you're described as being an experimental documentary filmmaker. Do you, are those... Is that one thing, or do you think of that as two things? You know, I think of my work as kind of spanning experimental film and documentary. It's certainly like Whipped and Raising Appalachia are more, they're more straightforwardly documentary films than things I've made since then. Chekhov for Children might be, but Chekhov for Children's pretty, it's pretty experimental in some ways. It's pretty loose in terms of its uh, editorial structure. It's got a very gritty, like, visual aesthetic because it uses all this funky video from the 70s and so so there's that and then there and then I have this more experimental practice that is more tends to be more 16 millimeter based yeah, Chekhov really plays with memory conceptually mm-hmm. yeah so then you started teaching and how many years were you there so I started at the University of Iowa in the fall of 2000 and I left around Christmas time 2012 so it was 12 and a half years I left in the middle of the academic year which don't ever do. I do not recommend it. It's extremely difficult. And I really, there was just no way around it because I, I, had, a, I had applied for this job at Virginia Commonwealth. And, but when I, I, when I got the offer of the position, it was already May. And I just couldn't, I couldn't leave. I couldn't just be like, I'm, I'm out of here, right, guys. Yeah. But I also couldn't. Good luck with that. I, right, <laughs> I know. I always had too much loyalty, but I also didn't want to wait a whole year. Mm-hmm. So, we, so I worked that last fall semester. We sold our house in Iowa. Actually, <laughs> it's my fantasy. We had our house on the market in Iowa. And then we, we moved um, to Richmond, and I started the job at Richmond in January 2013. You mentioned earlier... Um, I think it was when you were still in uh, Iowa, 
that you had kids and you now we're still making work. And I remember reading uh, another interview you did about you, you talking about how that influenced your work and mm-hmm. like how you navigated <laughs> having kids and trying to make work. And I think it's something that I, don't, I know I'm interested in. You know, I have a, sure. a four-year-old daughter and we're, I'm struggling with that as well. And I know Michael, we talked a little bit about that during my interview. I'm wondering like how that how that's going. Yeah, I definitely work out long term. I mean, I definitely, I definitely think having kids slows you down in your artistic output for the first few years. I mean, at least for the first few years. And I think part of it is just like, well, I'm just going to accept that there's going to be a little bit of a slowdown. And I think also I've, I've made work about and with my kids. So I've tended to, I've made a few films that are between 10 and 20 minutes long, sort of about the experience of motherhood. They t- they're more experimental. Mm-hmm. And I also, I have, I have mentors and people that I admire that I sort of look to, filmmakers like Lynn Sachs. I don't know if you know her. She's a Brooklyn-based filmmaker. She's an amazing filmmaker who also, her work really kind of spans documentary and experimental practice. And she was a professor of mine when I was at Temple University. Older filmmakers, a woman named Gunver Nelson, who's a Swedish filmmaker, um, who you know made some films with her children, and so that I've sort of managed to incorporate into my work. What What about these other filmmakers, though? Like, did you take, did, did you get from them in terms of managing time and having children, things like that? You said you were influenced by, or you were. I just them. thought. I just thought. They can do it. I'll just figure oh. it out somehow. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I don't know that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Lynn, I've gotten practical. Like Lynn, I've gotten really practical advice from, like with particular, th- you know, like with particular projects, right? Or grant applications. She might give me some feedback. I mean, th- but just in, in the in the more global way, I think just being inspired by or getting getting a kind of like good feedback on my work from you know from sort of older female filmmakers who I admire and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But it does get easier. Four is the worst. I mean, four is really, that's a bad, <laughs> that's a bad age. <laughs> I just came from my daughter's fourth birthday party two hours ago. <laughs> so you know, so you know. Actually, I think three was much harder. She'll never forgive you. Leaving, yeah, on, the, right. leaving on her birthday. <laughs> um, like the end of two, right through three. I think that was the toughest. I think that was the toughest. I remember, because and then my son... Who's, who's eight? Um, I remember also when he turned four. I thought, I thought we we're developing a much more uh, of a relationship. We're developing like we're, like we can hold actual start to have conversations right. yeah, that are meaningful. We can go out to eat, and I don't have to constantly tell you to stop doing that right. or stop doing this. Yeah. There's some negotiation. Yeah. Well, let me tell you this summer. This summer, so my kids are eleven and almost eight. My younger child is she's gonna, she. I may as well just say she's eight. My daughters are eleven and eight. And this summer, they started getting breakfast for themselves. Hmm. Both of them. It was like a revelation. I know. I mean, it is amazing. I just remember I walked downstairs one morning, and they were both sitting there with bowls of cereal, with milk in the bowl, (laughs) and spoons. And no spills. And I thought, (laughs) this is, I'm going back to bed for a week. (laughs) This is incredible. (laughs) That's right. So there is, there is that. Yep. Um, Yeah, it's like every change, there seems to be more work. Like my daughter just started going to preschool, and now... I thought, oh, it's gonna be nice. She'll be out of the house for a few hours. My wife will be able to relax. Like, oh, wait, now we have to make her lunch. And you have to make her lunch. Like, and then also, did she before. just start? Like, like, when did she start? She just started like last week. Okay, yeah. so you're all going to get really sick 
Yes. Like for the next month, right. for two months, this you're all just going to get every bug. This is her first time. Yeah, in yeah, any yeah. Kind of like forget it. You're just going to. You don't have daycare immunity yet. Yeah, you don't. Yeah. You don't. Yeah. But it's going to be fine. Then Something by the time she gets to. to school, she's yeah. they could have the plague in her school, right. and she won't That's get right. it. So it'll be yeah. fine. It's good. It's absolutely so true. Yeah. They bring home everything, and then and and you know, they're, now you're involved in another organization too, mm-hmm. right? So there's fundraisers and there's events and all kinds of other things. Yeah, it's a whole new chapter. It's a. It doesn't necessarily. I mean, yes, there are. There'll be some more time in the middle of the day, but you know. mm-hmm. <laughs> thanks know, for, for killing my. <laughs> I'm <know>, sorry. <laughs> killing my hope. Don't do too much. My whole thing is not to do too much. I got very involved in PTA when I was in yeah. Iowa, and now I'm really I don't I don't do PTA. I just I, I I really try to do. I try to say I'm not going right. to do too much. So. <laughs> Oh, you know that. Sorry, that was my phone. Did everyone put their phone on vibrate? I had, Except I for guess me. I did. <laughs> um, we we rattled off quite a few um, of your projects so far, and there and there are few, quite a few more. Um, and you have you maintain a website, pieshake.com. It's all yes. one word. The, you know, pie p i e shake.com. Where did that name come from? So in Iowa City, there is a, a diner that's been around for fifty years called the Hamburg Inn Number no. Two, and they have an item on the menu called the pie shake. <laughs> And it is a piece of pie and vanilla ice cream thrown into a blender. That sounds delicious. It's so good. <laughs> and I just, I just, I don't know. I registered the yeah, domain yeah. name. I was like, I love the pie shake. I'm going to call it pie shake pictures. Oh, it's great that you got that domain. Yeah. So. And, and, and so a lot, you know, your projects are all listed there. You have quite an extensive CV there as well. And it's, it's actually a fun website to go through too. That's good. I, when I first rebuilt the website, I was looking at a lot of other, especially like photography and film websites, and it was, maybe, I don't know, it was maybe four or five years ago, and everything was so minimal, mm-hmm. you know, like the white and like the very thin light gray font. Yes. And I just, I just thought, I got to, I didn't do that. So it might be <laughs> sort of over the top, I don't know, it's not over the top, but it sort of went a different direction, right. but... <laughs> But and what about seeing some of your work? Is that the best place to kind of get links to things or try to see things? Yes, you know, I had I had a very interesting experience with I was teaching a graduate seminar this past fall at VCU and we had a few people come in via Skype, one of whom was a sort of a fine art film curator who had been at the Images Festival in Toronto and he now ran a gallery and a lot of what we were looking at was sort of moving images outside of the cinema in galleries, other alternative spaces. We had this Pablo uh, Deo Campo sort of visited the class via Skype. And one of the issues we, we discussed with him was this idea of filmmakers, artists putting their work on the web and, you know, how much can, should one do that? And his, his answer was so interesting. He, he said, you know, there's plenty of, there's, there's Ubu web, right, where there's all this video art and this work, contemporary work or older work that you can see for free. Like so many people have their work on the web and it doesn't seem to affect really, whether or not fest film festivals or museums or so forth were curated. And so that really inspired me. I thought, fuck it. I'm just going to unpassword protect almost all of my work. I have a few, I have a short film called An, Incom- An Incomplete History of Pornography 1979 that uses a lot of, it uses pornography from 1979 that was shot in Super 8. I think the original footage is quite beautiful, but it's quite pornographic. And so I thought, well, I'm a professor at a public university. Probably I shouldn't just have that randomly on my website because right. someone might complain. Right. And then I have a, a little short documentary that I made of my daughter, Ruby, that I actually don't have on the website at all. So, But for the most part, I have things that are not password protected on there. And then I also, my some of my longer films are on a site called Fandor. Yeah, I saw a few things on yeah. there. Yeah, so Fandor. And Fandor is great. I love Fandor. Yeah, I think the, you know, the general wisdom was always 
no, don't use social media to show your work because then publishers will never want to. And I don't think they can af- even afford to do that anymore. And I'm not sure that's really even an issue anymore. I, I think it's really changed. I think even film festivals say, well, has this been on the web? Or ha-? But, th- but not very many of them. And so I, I haven't had an experience yet where someone has said, oh, we can't show this because it's on your website. I mean, it's not like I'm get, you know, this huge level of traffic, right? So I think it's, yeah, I think it's fine. I think it's, I think it's good too, because it's easier for someone, it's easier for, for a curator or a festival programmer to just go look at the Mm -hmm. work and either decide to ask you to program it or decide to ask you what else you're working on or not than it is. I'd almost rather not know if someone wants to look at my work because they're thinking about including me in a show. It's better if I don't know than if they ask me to send right. them a bunch of DVDs <laughs> and, and I never hear you. from you. Right, right. <laughs> it's, like, then I've been, it's like, I don't know if I was rejected. They looked at the work. I have no idea. So, but there is also, I mean, there's this, right. There's this thing on Vimeo where you can see geographically where people are looking. Right. So mm-hmm. I've just was, you know, so you could get into that mind yeah. space where I was like, Oh, mm-hmm. someone in Czechoslovakia watched that movie three times. What's going on? I made the mistake of asking, I applied for a grant, didn't get it. It was like two years in a row, or, or you know, it's only every other year. So after a period of three years. And, I, you know, you can ask for the reason. You get a letter back. Yes. And I said, all right, let's just find out what's going on. And the letter said something very generic, like, this work doesn't add to the existing canon of work that's already out there, something like that, or the existing <laughs> genre. And I thought, that just pisses me off more. That didn't help me at all. Yeah. Yeah, unless it's constructive feedback. Right. That was just dismissive. Mm -hmm. So you meet your uh, future husband, John Fryer. Mm -hmm. Um, Did you guys get married before the VCU position? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Well, before. So John and I met in 2000. We got married in 2003, and our kids were born in 2004 and 2007. And so John had a very interesting trajectory because he he was sort of this star student of that MFA program in photography at Iowa. He went on to do a number of different projects. He did a project called All My Life for Sale, which was a photography slash social... It wasn't even... I would call it Web 2.0. No one even really uses that expression. It was an early sort of online art project that then turned into a a book that was quite successful. So he sort of got involved in that. And then he ended up um, teaching at Iowa and getting a full-time position there as well. So leaving Iowa was a big family decision. It was, it was hard. And, and really the job came up at VCU and I applied for it. And it was to be the chair of a department of photography and film. And one thing I used to say about myself, because at Iowa, I was in a film program that wasn't even in the art school. Sometimes I would tell students. Was it a communication program? It was a very, it was a really interesting department called the Department of Cinema and Comparative Literature. So it had an MFA in literary translation, an MFA in film and video, a PhD in film studies, and a PhD in comp lit. Wow. So it was, a, it was, it was great, but it was much more sort of the film lit humanities focus as opposed to, I mean, we had a lot of interaction with the art school, but. But it wasn't like a considered a visual arts program. No, it wasn't a visual arts program. And I used to I used to tell students, you know, in with this idea of like what you study as your undergraduate major, that it doesn't necessarily mean that's what you're going to do in your career. And I would say, yeah. so for example, I studied photography and while that kind of led to filmmaking and led to what I do, it's not part of my career. But then it became part of my career because I'm the chair <laughs> of a department of photography <laughs> and film and the photography side of it is, especially at the undergraduate level, is more active than the film side of it at VCU. 
so then the move to VCU was a was a it was a big family decision. It was great. I mean, it's been great. Are you teaching photography classes as well? No, I do okay. not teach photography classes. So, no, I mean, I you know. I have to really educate myself before I go in and talk to those guys about the printers because I'm like, print? I don't know. You know, like, I can, let's, we can go talk about the dark room. But um, no, and I, we have such wonderful photography faculty there. So I teach writing, I teach filmmaking. I'll teach, I mean, I, will, I work with graduate students who work in photography a lot. I'll teach the grad seminar or in the spring, I'm team teaching the studio class. So, but my, and my husband teaches, he's in the same department. And so he'll, he teaches both photography and moving image. I know a lot of um, colleges, universities, when they really want you, the, but you have a spouse who also needs work who teaches, they'll kind of open up that door a little bit as well. Is, is, is that how that happened? Yeah. So we were able it's to. It's a great deal. <laughs> it was great. It was, it was a very, yeah. it was, it was very, it was very generous. I mean, I think that they, I think they probably knew that, you know, nowadays, like, you know, when you're hiring someone, you're not supposed, you don't, you can't ask them about what their spousal situation is, but. Mm-hmm. But it's easy to know. I mean, he knew people there just from going to conferences like SPE. And so I think they sort it wasn't of knew. A hard sell. Well, I think yeah. they were like, we can, you know, we can be like a, a two, two for two one. For one. Yeah. So. yeah that, where I teach, is, it's, it's, it's strange. It's just the opposite. They don't even like it if your spouse comes in as an adjunct. Like they, it's, it's some strange thing. I, I feel like maybe they think. Nepotism. Or, no, but or, if, if you go, you'll, you'll both go, or I don't know. I don't know what it is exactly. Yeah. But we actually lost a very good fine art professor because uh, his, his wife applied for a, a fine art position and didn't get it, and they just both went somewhere else, I think, where they both got work. Yeah, it doesn't really make sense to me why colleges and universities would not encourage that. I mean, you know, if you, there was, at Iowa, there would occasionally be a situation where, for example, the School of Dentistry wants to hire some fabulous, famous dentist, and his wife is a Sunday painter. And they would go to the art school and say, why don't you, will you hire this person? And they'd say, no, (laughs) we're not, you know, so there has to be a kind of, you know, the qualifications have to be there. Right, of course. But I think that, but I think that it makes sense to support that. So people, there are a lot of, there are a lot of couples actually at VCU, I mean, in the School of the Arts. So yeah, it's, it's a good community there. When did you start working on Checkoff for Children? So Checkoff for Children started when Philip Lopate came to a conference called Nonfiction Now at the University of Iowa. Philip Lopate, the writer. Philip Lopate, the writer. He's based in Brooklyn. And he had written an essay called Chekhov for Children. It's still, you know, sort of well-known in art education, creative essay circles. It's It's been in a couple of his collections, collected works, et cetera. So he came to a conference called Nonfiction Now. And as he was, I guess he was a keynote speaker there. And so I got to see him for the first time in however, 30 years. And he reminded me, which I guess I knew because it's in the essay checkoff for children, that there was a tape that existed of this production of Uncle Vanya that Philip had directed um, in 1979 that was it was performed at the Symphony Space. So just to kind of go back and explain, I mean, checkoff for children is kind of hard. It's like a little hard to explain. So <laughs> checkoff for children. So checkoff for children it, it initially is an essay written by Philip Lopate in 1979 about his own experience of working with 10 and 11 year olds from the public school on the Upper West Side to stage all of, you know, in its entirety, two and a half hours, Anton Chekhov's Uncle Vanya with these untrained, can't even call them actors, school children. Yeah. And so he just mentioned to me, oh, yeah, you know, there's, there's a tape of the whole thing, you know, of the whole production, which is in the essay, but I had forgotten it. 
So I said, oh, I would love to see that. You know, we said, oh, let's stay in touch. I would love to see the tape. You know, it's like black and white, Betamax. And then I forgot all about it. And six months later, there's something in my mailbox, and it's a VHS of the tape of the production. And I just I, love it when people follow through with something because so many times it doesn't happen. Yeah. yeah. So I got this tape, and I thought, I I got to do something with this because it's really it's it's really remarkable. I mean, you could never watch the whole thing, you know. It's two and a half hours long, <laughs> but it, but I just thought, well, here are all these people who I grew up with, because um, I was one of the children involved, but I wasn't in the play. I was sort of Philip's assistant director. I'm putting air quote just to, since we're <laughs> yes, that's I'm right. putting air quotes around my assistant. <laughs> I was Philip's assistant director of the Uncle Vanya production at Symphony Space. How old were so you? How was, old were the kids? I was 10. It was all 10, 10 to 12 year olds, really, fifth and sixth graders at a public school. And so I went back and tracked people down. And this was just at the beginning of social media. So at first it was a little hard to find some people. And I tracked people down and I went and did interviews with all of the children involved. And I did an inter- a long interview with Philip and had Philip read sections of the initial essay. And so, so the visual material that I had to work with at first was the tape of the play and then these interviews. And one thing I discovered was that that era, like in New York of, you know, 1970s, late, late 1970s New York, it's sort of like an archival black hole. There's not a lot of visual material. I mean, it, just in terms of like working with archive houses or things I could find, because it's sort of the end of Super 8 16 millimeter home movies, but predates the rise of consumer video. So I was, I started to work with this material and I thought this is visually going to be like, I don't have enough to work with here. And then I discovered this whole trove of films and just other films and tapes that the students had made at that school during that time period. From their parents probably. Well, no, it was actually, so there there was, there's an organization that still exists called Teachers and Writers Collaborative. Mm. And they, and because they sent artists and poets into the public schools and they were the ones who had who Philip had been working for. And so they just had these boxes. I mean, I went to their office and they had these boxes of tapes. They were Betamax. They had no way to watch them. So I had to buy a Betamax machine on eBay (laughs) to watch the tapes. And they had Super 8 films. So I had to transfer the Super 8 films. And they were all made by kids at the school. Wow. They were like little documentaries about the Upper West Side or little crazy fiction films. It It was an art School. I mean, it had a focus on art, didn't no. it? No. Oh, I thought it did. No, I thought it was, it was a, like a, a special kind of magnet school. No, it was a regular public school that had something at, that at that time was called an open corridor. So if you wanted your kids to be in the open corridor, they kind of got that. It meant that it was a little more open, flexible. You had more free time. But then there were more traditional, like there, there, there were more traditional classrooms and regular focus. And that school is still there. It's PS 75 on 96 and West End. But, but those art programs were administered by the school or was it like by administered by this uh, organization you just mentioned? The- you know, it was really, it was really a very strong dynamic principle that was good at getting resources to bring in these programs from the school. It was a combination of that. And then mm-hmm. also just a kind of looseness, I think in the school, like at least in this one part of the school where the, where the parents were open to that kind of that kind of, you know, I don't, I don't want to say extra because art's not extra, but I think the parents in that community were really open to a broader curriculum that included art or just more, sort of more creative projects. This is something that at the time might have been non-traditional. Yes, yeah. definitely. That film had a, a nice run too. Um, 
What do we have here? Uh, Peter Rollins Film Award for Best Documentary, uh, mentioned in IndieWire Annual Critics Survey 2010, and the official selection of the Telluride Film Festival uh, and the Rotterdam Film Festival? Yes. Oh, nice. Yeah, Yeah, so then Telluride was really, Telluride was a fun experience because it's a, you know, I mean, it's like a big celebrity film festival and then they have this thing called The Backlot Uh where they show 10 documentaries and they're all focused on the arts. And so that was really special. And Philip was there as well. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're teaching documentary then, documentary film at VCU. I teach documentary. I teach, you know, I teach kind of across the curriculum where I'm needed. So last fall, for example, I taught a screenwriting class. I'm not a screenwriter, but I've taught writing in, in enough contexts that I, I did that with the, kind of the film juniors. And that was really a great class. And then... This year, I'm mostly working with the graduate students, so it's more, its more, you know, as you know, self-directed in terms of what their projects are. And I have some wonderful, I, I work with a filmmaker named Sonali Gulati, who's an amazing documentary filmmaker, and so she teaches a lot of the, the real hands-on documentary classes. So is your primary role then as chair? Yes, so I'm primarily a chair. Okay, and, and what is, I, I think it's different from diff- different places. Is it an administrative position? Is it, it is. Is it in lieu of a dean? No, no, it's, it's, no, we have, so we're in a, we're in our own school of the arts. It's about 4,000 undergraduate, maybe it's 4,000 total undergraduate and graduate. We have a wonderful Dean. He actually was the chair of sculpture for 17 years. And, um, so he's the Dean of the school of the arts. And then there are 17 programs and departments all with administrative faculty. So we so I'm the chair of a department that's about 125 undergraduate majors. And now you're you're here in New York this week here in New York. <laughs> on a whirlwind tour working on your, your latest project which is all things are photographable yes. uh, about Gary Winogrand, the photographer Gary Winogrand. Yes. So what, what's this week been like? It's all coming back to photography for me. <laughs> so all things are photographable is do I want to say that it's like a biopic? It sounds like A&E. All things are photographable is a documentary about Gary Winogrand and his work. And the project started, there was the, there's been retrospective attention to his work, as you know, at SF MoMA and the National Gallery and the Met, and and then it's gone to Europe. And, And when the show was first mounted at SF MoMA, there was a big article in Harper's that included some photographs. I think this was in early to mid 2013. So it's already two years ago. And I remember reading that article and thinking, God, I just love Gary Winogrand. Like, I just, I looked at those, and I have all, you know, I don't have all the books, but I have a bunch of the books. But I just hadn't looked at that work in a long time. And I thought, wow, like this work, like it really, really holds up. Like, I'm so glad there's this new attention to it. So then that, you know, then I sort of thought that and went away. And then later I just started thinking, I wonder, like, why, like, why isn't there a documentary about him? There should be. So there are like bits and pieces, almost like news clips. Yes, kind of yes. Oh, I I have them all. Oh, good. I have them all. I have the the Bill Moyers and oh, the Barbara yes. Lee Diamondstein. Right. I have the Rice. You know, I mean, I have the crap. You know, I have the what I've ripped from YouTube. I'll need to right. go hopefully get better versions of them. Um, I have audio tapes from Simpson Kalisher. I just found out from Susan Kismarek the other day that there are these audio tapes that Jay Mazel made that she's the only person who's heard and they're now at CCP and so I've got to call them next week. So sometimes when I get the idea to make a feature documentary, I think to myself, don't do that. Just <laughs> just don't, just just don't, just forget about that. It's going to take a long time. And after Chekhov, I mean, Chekhov for Children took like four, four years to make and it was impossible to raise money for because as you might imagine, if you say to someone, I'm making a 
feature documentary <laughs> about my friends and I doing a play in the fifth grade. It's like, ew, right. who wants to see that? Right, so forget that idea. Did, did we make that clear that you are in that school? Well, yeah, because I said I was the assistant director. Right. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I was yeah. one of the kids. So. Yeah, I mean, that was an unusual, very it was unusual very weird. kind of, but, and that's about, in ways that's part of the experimental part of it as well. I mean, there's, you know, it, it's, it's kind of rare to find yourself through somebody else. Right. right? Well, and especially yeah. for that, I mean, nowadays, your kids, my kids, they're all going to be documented. Yeah. You know, yeah. endlessly, end of time, they'll be living in the cloud forever. Yeah. But my son wants to get a, uh, be a YouTuber. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> He's, yeah. he's eight. He's yeah. decided already. That's good. Yeah. That's a good, good move. Um, YouTube celebrity. <laughs> but, but right after Checkout for Children, I thought, I'm not, I, I, I can't make another feature. It's, it's exhausting. It's, you have to raise money in a way that's, it, it, it's just exhausting. And especially because, right, you know, the tendency for, I mean, there's such a limited funding for the arts in the United States, but the tendency in documentaries to fund more social practice you know, where you, what's the impact that you're going to make? How are you going, you know, what, what are you going to do with this? And, but so I, so I thought about why isn't there a Gary Winogrand film? And then I said to myself, don't think about that too much. <laughs> and then I called the Frankel gallery, which is his gallery. They represent the estate. And I asked them, why isn't there a film about Gary Winogrand? And they said, we don't know. And I said, so no one else is working on it. No, no one's like fighting over the rights. No. Were you secretly hoping somebody was? Yeah, you kind wouldn't of. Have to I was like, it. I know. I was like, really? Okay. So then I said, I said, well, I might be, I, I, I think I, I might want to do that. Like, what would I do? And they said, well, why don't you write us a proposal and send it? And so that's what I did. I spent a lot of time doing research and thinking about it. And I wrote a proposal and Jeffrey Frankel and Eileen Hale, who's Gary's widow, approved it. And they said, go for it. And then I was like, okay, well, now I have no money, so uh, now what? So then I, last summer, I wrote a grant to the National Endowment of the Arts, which I then got in April of this year and was able to start uh, shooting. Thank you. Yes. So that was some seed money. So it's good. You know, then once you get a little bit of that, hopefully more comes through. I'm working with a, a really old friend of mine who's a producer in Atlanta, his name's Ben Franzen, and he made a, a movie called Copyright Criminals. This is a sampling sport. If you ever need to teach your students about copyright, I mean, it's it's mainly about it's about music, but it's great. It's a great film. Oh, sure. I mean, it applies music and visual yeah. arts. So yeah. he's so he's helping me. He's co-producer on it, um, which has been great, just because he because I'm working with a slightly bigger crew uh, than I than I normally keep it really really small. But I really think that it's so important. You know the. I don't know. The photographs are so important and the, and the super eight films he left behind are so beautiful. I just want, I want everything to really be top notch. So we came to New York. Um, Ben and I came to New York for three days. And over the last three days, we shot our initial six interviews. Oh, wow. What are, what are those super eight films he left behind? I've never heard of. Yes. So there are teaser. Yeah. Yeah. So there are, um, there are, several hours of eight millimeter films. Some of them are just of his, of his family, of his children, of his first two wives. Some of them are just out on the street in New York. Some at the like Central Park Zoo or Fifth Avenue. And they're just, they're really interesting because he has a very, I mean, to me, they're interesting because they're super eight. I mean, there's a kind of nostalgia where like they're beautiful and colorful and they're New York in the 1960s. Color. Yeah. Yeah. They're color. Mm -hmm. They're all color. And they're also, he has a very distinctive way of shooting the super eight, which is that he, he, sh- I mean, he, sh- he holds the frames, he holds the camera still a lot and just lets action unfold in front of it like a proscenium. 
But then you can see some of the same concerns in his photographs sure. as well. Like, you know how he, he has a lot of photographs of um, things being doubled or mirrored. You see that. There's this great shot of these two women feeding birds by Riverside Park, and they both have identical bright yellow kerchiefs. And he's just sort of behind them and following them, and they're feeding these birds. And it's like, I, you know. So his photography is in there. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I'm, I could just watch those films all day. They're great. Mm-hmm. And then there's, there's, there's so many... There's so many photographs. And then there are also the color slides, which, you know, I mean, there is some color work in the 1964 book, but he left behind 35,000 color slides. I haven't seen those at all myself, but Michael Almereda and Susan Kismarek, I think, are doing research into that um, to try and develop a project out of that. So I'm really excited about that. So that um, you won't be able to access that for this documentary then? For the color the color slide yeah. work? Well we'll see how good oh, their okay. research is. <laughs> I think the archive is very the archive is very sensitive about letting people look because mm-hmm. they're they're kind of more fragile. And so I didn't I didn't realize there were so many color slides. No. And I and so I didn't I spent a week at the archives a little over a year ago. I didn't ask to look at the color work. I mean, there's so much I mean, I, I had sent them this list of things I wanted to look at. And then the day I got there, they had this huge cart. And they said, well, this is just the first few things you ask for. And I realized, like, oh, okay. Like, I'm not going to get through, very, you know, because it's massive. Wow. I, I hope, I mean, it, I guess it depends on what, what Michael and Susan find. Um, it would be great to include some of that. Well, how much can you, can you tell us about sort of the storyline direction or what you've done so far i mean i I, obviously you you don't want to give too much away yet right i think it's less a question of giving stuff away as it is sort of finding the story and it's it's still developing as you go yeah as as we go and sort of the contributions of the many people we're interviewing are so important so there's a I, i mean a lot of the way i've been thinking about it uh is informed by the way leo ruben ruben fine structured his incredible essay in the catalog for the more recent retrospective. So he divides that essay into three, conveniently for a filmmaker who likes three-act structure, (laughs) into three major parts. There is the Down from the Bronx introduction to Gary as a young artist, his work commercially in the fields of photography, his early life with his first wife, Adrienne, the second section he calls A Student of America, and that's more about his most artistically productive period from the 1960s to the early 70s. And I'm forgetting, am I going to forget the name of the third section? The third section is really about that sort of last part of his life where he leaves New York, goes to Chicago, Texas, and Los Angeles, and his work sort of changes while he's there. So that, you know, so so broadly speaking, the, the structure of the film will be chronological, but I think it will also, there will, it will also really be in some ways just about the work and the images and why they matter. I mean, in the interview with Leo Rubenfein, he said some really wonderful, I mean, he really can, he can really, I mean, he wasn't even looking at them, right? I mean, while he was talking, he's like seeing them in his mind, but he can really unpack those images and talk about them in a way that's very beautiful. Do you want to say who you spoke to this week or do you want to keep that? Oh yeah, no, no, that's fine. So who did I interview? So it was a good range. So we, so we did six interviews this week. Um, We interviewed Leo Rubenfein, who's a photographer and essayist and the curator of the the big recent um, revisitation of Gary's work. Uh, Tom Roma, the photographer and our former professor, who was a friend of Gary's, 
uh, Adrian LeBeau. In, in, in many ways, Gary Winogrand was a mentor of Tom Rose. Oh, yes, too. absolutely. Yeah. And a, he was a mentor of Tom's and a mentor of Leo's mm-hmm. and a mentor, of course, of Todd Papa George, who, was, who we didn't interview this week, but we're coming back hopefully October, early November. We interviewed Adrian LeBeau, who was Gary's first wife. She's 82 years old. And so we interviewed her in her apartment on the Upper West Side yesterday. And that was amazing. And I, I'm hoping to go back because we did this long interview with her, but she has boxes and boxes of prints and sort of more personal. That was sort of the more personal material um, that we got from her. We interviewed Jeffrey Henson Scales. Do you know who he is? He's a photographer and a photography editor at the New York Times. He was also influenced by Gary not so much a student of his, but Gary was a mentor of his of Jeffrey's when they were in Los Angeles. I have together. Um, an an interview that Tom did with Jeffrey Scales for the Photo Three class at Columbia University. I found all these old cassette tapes. I I recorded all those interviews when I was in that class for Tom. I just oh, found wow. them and I'm actually digitizing them now. And I you know I'll give them to Tom and see what he wants to do with them. But maybe we can uh, release some of those too. That's great. Yeah, yeah, he was really, really terrific. That was fun. And we did that interview at the New York Times building, which was also sort of cool to be inside. <laughs> um, and then, of course, we interviewed Susan Kismarek, the MoMA curator. And we interviewed a photographer named Michael Ernest Sweet. Do you know him or his work? Oh. You know, he was this sort of wild card. So we had this, we had these three days booked and we had five people and because Todd couldn't do it this week. And about a month ago, there was an article in the Huffington Post called Street Photography Has No Clothes. Oh, yes. Did you read that? Yes, yes, it was yes. really interesting and provocative. Yeah. And he is a street photographer. Yes. And I just I thought it was so well written. Mm-hmm. I just contacted him and said, well, can we interview you? Because I wanted this more contemporary perspective on the sort of broader questions around street photography. And so you that, sent me the link. That's how I know. Yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. it was yeah. really yeah. good. Yeah, so yeah, we yeah. so we interviewed him. So the, those were the six. And then sort of trying to figure out Susan thought we should talk to A.D. Coleman, who is sort of one of the critics, more of a critic of Gary's work. He's an interesting guy. I've met him once. <laughs> yes, me too. And it's funny yeah. because I thought about, I, when I met him at some conference a while ago, I, I, it was a while ago, I thought to myself, I should interview him. And then he sort of fell off my list somehow. And then Susan reminded me, I'm hoping to interview Lori Simmons mm. because I'd really like to get, I, I really want to, th- you know, I really, really want someone who was doing a different kind of work in the in the early As mid eighties. Contemporary. Yeah, exactly. And then the other, I, I think I would, I'd like to interview Jeffrey Frankel and Eileen Hale, his widow. So, and then more, you know, other names keep coming up. I feel like we don't we don't quite have enough women that might be okay. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure. So, if yeah, if you have any suggestions of other people we should talk to, mm-hmm. let me know. <laughs> okay. No, like, really, I don't know. You'd be like, you right. should talk to so and so. But it's a lot. I mean, we probably already have nine or ten hours. Oh wow! I know. Yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> Is that where the primary work, like you know, you you mentioned several times earlier, how sort of hesitant you were to enter into uh, another sort of long documentary project is that where you feel like the bulk of the work is is in sort of editing together this massive material yes it's the fundraising and then also the editing but you know it's also about getting back circling back to what we were discussing in regards to having children like I think it's not coincidence that I haven't yesterday I mean for the last three days I shot these documentary interviews I haven't shot documentary interviews like in that way where you go and you've like have all this kind of like information and research in your head but then the need to have this kind of connection with someone on film where you go on this journey together and it can be very emotional. Like I haven't done that since 
2008. My interview with Philip Lopate, which lasted all day. I mean, he was my teacher when I was 10. You know, it was really, it was amazing. I was pregnant with Ruby, you know, so I really, but I, I, it's like not a coincidence that I had to stop doing that kind of thing while my kids were really little because it's, it's like you get into, you know, it's like you need something, they need something. There's this, there's this intensity. I don't know. So I forget where I was going with that. But, <laughs> but yeah, so that's part of it. Part of it is that for me, doing these. Well, so it sounds like you're saying part of it's like psychological and part of it's just like the labor that's involved in it. Like, it's an, there, yeah, there's, there's, the, there's the labor of, there's the labor of working with all the material in the editing room to cut it down, to structure it, to figure out what it is, to not, to keep it fresh, to, to maintain like what's interesting about it in your mind while you see it over and over and over again. But there's also the more, the emotional labor of getting involved with documentary subjects mm. and sort of asking them to share their experience. It's like a responsibility. Yes, right? it's definitely a responsibility. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, because you're 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 now responsible for for the for what they're saying and how they're saying it and how it's going to come across when it's all put together and, and you've got now you've got this connection to them. Yes. Yeah. I mean that was I definitely felt that with with Adrian yesterday. I mean, she called me today. I haven't even checked my voicemail, but you know, I mean, she's, she, she was emotional. She, at one point she was, she was pretty emotional and she, well, I'm actually not going to say it cause it'll be in the films and everybody. Okay. So are you, are you, um, you know, happy where you are now with being at VCU, where you are in your life doing this work? Wow. It's like the big existential question. <laughs> yes. I will tell you that I absolutely love VCU. It is an amazing artistic community. It's an amazing school to work in. I really, when I went there to visit, I thought I've never been in like a college or university environment where everyone seems so happy. Like what's going on here? Like people are just, they're just happy there. Actually, there's one of these, you know, dumb polls on the internet, right? Where it says like Richmond is like one, one of the happiest cities in America, or if not the happiest, it's just uh -huh. a very chill, easy place to live. So, and I, and the students are fantastic and I really like and I'm this was the case at Iowa as well I really like working at a public college or university I just it's just I think we you know, were talking about this even before we started recording right that we we like the the students that we get yes we like absolutely the, the sort of the wide breadth of students that you get at a, a public institution definitely and we get when we see more and more students who'll do two years at, at a Virginia Community College before before coming to VCU and they transfer in and that can be challenging because because it's a it's a BFA and there's a structure to the curriculum where we have to be really clear. You're, you know, big, even though you have two years at community college, you're probably not going to be able to, I mean, you can't do the BFA in just two more years. Do you do portfolio reviews for those community college students or is it, has it worked there? So we, so all of the undergraduates do a year of art foundations before choosing their major. So when they apply, so when any undergraduate applies, it goes through art foundations. So they do the reviews and then art foundation decides if they have enough, community college credits to then be passed towards the major. So we we do portfolio reviews of students who who want to come to us for their sophomore through senior year and then also of the transfer students if they get through the art foundations if that makes sense. So yeah, I think it's um being at VCU, you know, there are the there are the challenges of having a more administrative position. I really love to teach and I don't teach as much as I would like to, but I also am try to be really protective of my time and not take on too much teaching because mm. I know that something will have to give. I also just getting back to some of these questions about how you balance that work with creativity, with family. When I moved to Richmond, 
my mother came to live with me and my husband. She left New York after 45 years, and that has been incredibly helpful because my job really is much more nine to five. I actually so, wasn't sure how that sentence was going to end. <laughs> yeah. No, no. It's been amazing. It's been amazing. My She and my husband get along great. I think she always wanted sons, so it's like totally amazing. But, you know, she walks my kids to school. She picks them up. She's really... And I, I, I don't think I could be... I actually don't think I could be a department chair without my mom there. And because my husband doesn't have tenure yet. I mean, it's like... And, you, and you know, there's just... There's stuff like when you're in a smaller artistic community, you got to go to everyone's gallery openings and shows and visiting artists lectures and talks which is great i love to do that but you know no, the downside of, consuming the downside of having kids who are old enough to make their own breakfast is that they're also old enough to say i don't want to go to that opening yeah, you yeah. know <laughs> what will there or they want to know like what's the like what's the cheese plate going to be like will there be cookies and grapes or will it just? Did they be start crap? telling you how much they hate with this? Oh, this work is terrible. While I know. At the I know, I know. Oh I yeah, know. no, no. My son asks me all the time. Well, who else is going to be there? Is so and so going to yes. be there? Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> what is this? Your social scene. Right. So there's so there's that. But I think it's um, yeah. I, I feel like I'm in a good. I feel like I'm in a good place. Mm. Leaving Iowa was the hardest. It was so hard on, on me and my family. It was just so, it's so hard. It was hard to leave someplace where we had been for 12 years. And started raising your child. Yeah, and, I mean, yeah. our kids were born in the hospital there. They had their friends there. I made the move in the middle of the school year. Oh, both your children were born? Yeah, they were both born oh, in okay. Iowa City. So, so it was really, it was hard. And when we left, I promised them we could go back every summer so they could go to camp with their friends. <laughs> my husband said... That's ridiculous. <laughs> and I said, no, 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 no. It's going to be great. And then the, f- the first summer, he didn't really come back. He was doing other things. I went with them for a month. The second summer, all four of us went for a month. And after that, he said, I can't, I'm not doing this for a month. So then this past summer, we went for two and a half weeks. Yeah. It was great. They go to camp with their friends. I actually am able to get work done there. Do you think that uh, that promise was more about your emotional need, maybe? <laughs> maybe, maybe. I mean, I, I, I. Because kids are guilt, you know, like, kids oh. are pretty resilient when it comes to things like that, and and once they start making new friends, they I know, but they yeah. are. But Georgia was in third grade, okay, and she yeah. had some. I mean, she had friends she had had since she was little, and they oh. were writing letters back and forth. And so, yeah, but definitely, I love going back to Iowa City. I mean, I just you know, it's it's a great place to be in the summer. It's this little magical college town. So it's y- your mother came to live with you. Did your father pass away? No, my father lives in. Um, my father left New York, moved to Savannah for a while. He was actually he was actually the chair of graphic design. He didn't have an academic career in New York. He worked at, he taught at Pratt for many years, on and off, you know, in graphic design, but he had his whole like design career. And then he got offered a position. He got offered a chair position at SCAD, Savannah College of Art and Design. Hmm. So he moved to Savannah to do that. And as you might know, SCAD is can be a very difficult place to teach. They burn through people rather quickly. I've heard that. I've yes, heard my that, dad yeah. stayed there for a while. I mean, just because they're our, our rival in the Southeast, that's not the only reason I'm saying that. But my dad stayed there for a while, and then he ended up being recruited for a job at the University of North Alabama. So mm. he lives in Florence. <laughs> so, yeah. Are they still married? Oh, God, no. Oh, okay. No, 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 okay. no, 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 okay. no, no. My parents are, they've been split up a long time. <laughs> okay. But they're, they get along, you know, right. so they're... Right, right. Yeah. What did and your mother do then? She still works. She works as a she works as um, like the office manager for a law firm in New York, a corporate law firm. So she so that was this thing where she she was not ready to give up working um, 
but she, so she works out of her, we bought a house together. So she lives on the third floor of this house and she has her whole law firm set up. There's some crazy way that the phone dials in, you know, so she can just pick up the phone and hit a button and it's mm, Wanda, you know, <laughs> I've heard that about like certain like law firms and tech firms when they have somebody they really like, they'll yeah. like move the world to keep you. Yeah. So they just contact. kept her. They just kept her. They, they, she supposedly works part time, so they get to pay her less, but she works a lot and she comes up to New York maybe once every two months just to kind of go check in on things and see friends here. So I meant to ask you, you, you've been working on a trailer for the, uh, yes. uh, all things are photographable. Is that, can people see that? Have, yes. So that uh, trailer is online on my website at pieshake.com. So that's the, oh, that's de- the two I minute definitely trailer. recommend it. Everyone should go there right now. Uh, wait, wait till this is over and then <laughs> go see it. <laughs> Dennis, did you have any things you, uh, didn't get to ask or say? Um, I was, I was a bit curious, I guess about, um, You'd had some more like literary quotes on and maybe on your CV or somewhere or one of your interviews. You talked about W.H. Auden. Oh, I don't know. I'm not. No, that's I'm not, on my email signature. Oh, is well, that's not where I saw it. But, it's not. So I don't. I don't think I've ever received an email from you. But, I know. But, no, but I mean, I have an Auden quote at the bottom of my email signature. Well, regardless, what huh. what did you okay, want to get anyway, to? Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I was just curious, like, what is it? I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I'm actually not familiar with Auden's work, but so the, I know, like, we've talked a lot about poetry and literature and right. some of the other interviews. And um, so I was curious, like, what your connection with the poetry is and, uh, and with your work? That's a really interesting question. And one of the things that I, I didn't ask Tom Roma this question, but one of the questions I had for people in talking about Gary's work was about the relationship between photography and poetry. Because, of course, Todd Papa George talks about that quite extensively. Oh, does he? I've never read, but his, I do read a lot about, like I'm reading a Seamus Haney book about uh, like his essays about poetry. And I find there's a lot of really interesting just conversation about sort of like the structure and the like priorities and problems of poetry that has so much in common with photography. And the, like the, the conversation in poetry seems so much more like clearly enunciated than it is in most like writing about photography. You should read. Do you know that? Do you know this Robert Haas essay about Robert Adams? I never really understood Robert Adams' work until I read that essay. Robert Haas is this amazing poet, and it's anyway. That's a great essay. But so the Auden quote is: "For poetry makes nothing happen. It survives in the valley of its making, where executives would never want to tamper." And that quote appeals to me because it it strikes me as a gesture of resistance against the instrumentalization of art and artistic practice, the idea that artistic endeavor has to have an outcome or a rubric or an impact, the idea that poetry makes nothing happen. Now, do I believe that poetry makes nothing happen? I think poetry can make everything happen, but I think it should be allowed to make what it happens happen as poetry, not in the service of something else, just like I think art and art education should aim towards that for their own their own well, it's not always something that's easily measured right and, exactly. and both both require a somewhat receptive audience yes that's yeah. true no it goes back to like you were talking about like the people's uh, hesitancy to fund documentary work that's right. not particularly about like social issue that'll have some kind of impact you know or before we started recording you guys were both talking about all of the assessments assessment and, you know, assessment like, assessment and you know i mean i think i mean you can you know there's a big battle in public education now, right? Huge. And I think, a, you know, a film like Gary Winogrand is, is hard to fund like that. But at the same time, I think, like, what's more, like, what's more of a social issue than 
photography and contemporary photography and what it means and what it means to sort of mediate the public space through these images. I mean, it's a huge question for culture and for life. So, yeah. Well, thank you for taking the time. Thank I know you, I know you must fun. also be somewhat exhausted, too, after, after <laughs> this week. I'm good. I got week. some sleep. I got some sleep oh, last night. Great. So, yeah. But when, was, when do you head back? I'm going back tomorrow morning. Oh, okay. I miss my kids. Yes. <laughs> Gotta go see them. Yeah. And when do uh, classes start for you? Oh, my God. They started August 19th. Oh, wow. I know. Early. I know. Yeah, yeah. And my kids don't go back to school till September 8th. Oh. Yep, that's what we're doing now. We, we've got, we're, we've got <sighs> our kids in extended uh, day camp. There's no camp. There, there's not a single camp in Richmond next oh. week. I told my husband, we could just, we could have a camp. We could advertise a camp like on flyers around the neighborhood. And we could Fill charge families like $1,000. <laughs> like give us $1,000 <laughs> right. to come over and like watch Project <laughs> Runway reruns with our kids. <laughs> and they would do it. Just drop them off. There's nothing. But my kids are camped out. They, they said, we don't want to camp. We've had enough camp. We want to mm. just hang out with, we'll do, I'll take a day or two off. Right. John will take a day off to hang out with Granny. Can you bring so, your kids to work at all? Is I do it sometimes. I do it sometimes. We have a weird policy at our, our college. We're not allowed to bring children onto campus. Really? Oh, yeah, really? at all. It's probably like for legal and insurance yes, reasons. that's exactly what it's for. It's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, I let one of my students do that at, at Mercer once. Oh, yeah. I'd, oh, I let, I, my, no, I let my students do it. I'm not, but oh, I'm okay. not allowed to do it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you again. Well, thank you. This was really fun. <laughs> yeah, and thank you, Dennis. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, thanks Dennis. Right. Yeah, Bye, everyone. Bye.